1620. Welcome to Let's Go Pensacola. I am your host, Julio Diaz. Hope you're having a great Saturday afternoon. Uh, we're going to have a great Saturday afternoon today here on the show. A little later on in the show, we'll bring on our friend Jeremy Branch, and we'll be talking about the latest episode of WandaVision and uh, some of the other things going on in pop culture. But we're going to start off today talking about the film industry in Florida and how things are how things are going or not going for that industry right now. Uh, and I've got a great uh, great friend on the line to talk about that. He's also going to hang out and talk with us uh, later on when we get into the pop culture stuff. But uh, joining me is an award-winning filmmaker. He's also uh, the program director for Pensacon, does lots of other great things in our community. Please welcome back to the show, Steve Wise. Hey, Julio. How you doing? Hey, Steve. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad. Thank you for having me back on. Always glad to have you. It's always uh, always fun to chat with you and catch up with uh, what's going on uh not just in pop culture, but with, with you and your filmmaking career. And we'll get into uh, some details later about what's what's going on with you there. But we, we kind of wanted to start with the macro. And uh, that is, uh, you you uh, have been doing a lot of work with Film Florida, which is the, yeah. I guess, the advocacy group for the film industry in the state. Is that the best way to put it? Um, that's probably a good way to put it. It's a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to um, – Building the film industry in Florida. So, what what does that entail? What does Film Florida do for for filmmakers and for the industry? Well, one of the major things that it does is it kind of like what you said. It was it's an ad. I can't say the word ad. <laughs> try one more time. Advocacy group. Um, Easy for where, you to say. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It's too early in the morning, uh, <laughs> even though it's afternoon by now. Um, <clears throat> but basically, um, one of the big things that they've been trying to do for the last several years is go to the politicians in Tallahassee and try to get them to support the film industry. And one of the ways that um, the, that Tallahassee can support is to have a what's called a uh, film incentive program. Florida used to have that, but in 2016, that program expired, and they just haven't seen the, uh, the need, if you will, to continue it. And basically what that is is that for films, television shows, um, video games even, anything that's kind of in the, in the visual uh, entertainment medium – they can apply for um, these incentives, and basically it gives you money to work with. And essentially, uh, you have a lot of states that have a program like this, in particular Georgia, in Louisiana, North Carolina, even Alabama has, has an incentive program. And so if a producer wants to do a movie, they're going to look at where – you know, what state is the cheapest and what has the best benefits for them. So Florida right now has no incentive, so there's no reason to bring a film to Florida. Why is that important? Because it creates jobs. And you have just 
kind of put it in perspective, we have at least four major film schools in Florida, starting with FSU and in that, you know, my alma mater is UCF. They have a great program. Uh, in, in Orlando, there's also Full Sail and Valencia. And, you know, there's other schools that, that have really good, strong film programs. These students cannot find jobs when they graduate in Florida. And so, by and large, they leave. They, you know, some go to Los Angeles, but a lot of them migrate to Atlanta. And even the people that continue to live in Florida and try to work here, most of their jobs are out of state. And so you, you just see this flood of, of our talent not being able to live and, and work in, in the state. So that's one of the things that these incentive programs bring work here. Um, there's also a side effect that, you know, when movies or TV shows are made here in the state, they spend a lot of money on extra stuff, hotel rooms, food, transportation, um, you know, building supplies for building sets. And, and all the peripherals that come along with it, they, they estimate for every dollar spent in Florida, there's $15 that are generated in, in revenue for, for the local areas. So this can be a huge boon to Florida that we're missing out on. And, and instead, Georgia and Louisiana in particular get the work and get the money that we should be getting part of. So that that's kind of uh, um, one of the things that, that Film Florida is doing is trying to um, advocate for our economy here in Florida. Are there any kind of hard numbers on how production has dropped around the state since uh, since the end of the incentives? Was it five years ago? Um, I'm, I'm sure there are. Uh, probably if you go to filmflorida.org, um, they would have all those numbers. I, I don't happen to have them right right handy, but I know that um, you know th- we have. I want to say there was something in the, in the area of 1.3 billion dollars that we've lost over the last number of years and that have gone elsewhere. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's a huge, huge hit economically that, that we have when we don't have this industry going on. You know, at one time, Orlando in particular was known as Hollywood, uh, Hollywood East, I think is what they called it. Uh, now Atlanta is Hollywood South, uh, <laughs> but, you know, you have Disney and, and uh, Universal that both have studios there in Orlando. And, you know, places like Miami and Tampa also were big thriving, um, you know, centers for, for, in particular, television production. Um, I know that there were several productions that were filmed in Miami that um, shut down and moved elsewhere when the incentive programs disappeared. That's- so. That's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate, too, when you see something that is set in Florida and then they don't shoot yeah. it here because they uh, I want to say the uh, the Ben Affleck movie that came out a few a couple of years ago, uh, Live by Night, uh, mm-hmm. which was set in the in the Tampa area. And granted, it was set, you know, uh, the movie was set in the early 1900s, but there's still a lot of that architecture there that they, they could have yeah. made use of. Uh, and instead they shot, I think, in Savannah. But, you know, everything they're talking about is they're talking about Ybor City and Tampa and, you know, it's yep. all 
but it, but it wasn't shot here. Uh, and then we have uh, coming up uh, in a, in a few months, we've got a, a new movie coming out, uh, Godzilla versus Kong, and some sharp-eyed people have spotted uh, <laughs> spotted a little piece in the trailer where it says Godzilla makes landfall at Pensacola, Florida. Well, they didn't shoot anything here. My understanding is uh, there is a scene of Godzilla making landfall at Pensacola, Florida, but uh, they shot it in Hawaii. <laughs> Because Hawaii looks exactly like Pensacola. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe they even could have taken advantage of the you know the the tax the tax incentives in Alabama and shot it in you know yeah. Orange Beach. That would at least be kind of you know it would look the terrain would look very similar. You know, we here would know, but but nobody else would know. But I mean, you know, Pensacola Wings of Gold had mountains in the background too. So what are you <laughs> right. what are you going to do? It happens. And that's the thing that, you know, we have had movies shot here in Pensacola. And, you know, I've, I've talked about other, other cities in, in the state, but there is a draw to the panhandle for, for production to go on. And, you know, we've, we've had some low-budget films. We've, you know, go back to the 70s where Jaws 2 was shot in, in you know, this area. And so um, there, there, we very well could have production going on here. Mobile has films at least once a year being shot down there. Nicholas Cage loves shooting over there for some reason. We could very easily pick up some of that as well, but we can't because producers are going to look at the bottom line and they're going to say, yeah, well, it's cheaper to shoot over there. Well, uh, we are coming up on our first break, but we'll have a lot more to talk about this. And we'll get into some of Steve's own film work as well. Uh, you're listening to News Radio 92.3 and AM 1620. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I know where I'm gonna go. I'm gonna pick my baby up and take her to the picture show. Everybody in the neighborhood is dressing up to be there too. News Radio 92.3 and AM 1620. Welcome back to Let's Go Pensacola. I am your host, Julio Diaz. We have been talking about the Florida film industry, the state of the Florida film industry, with Steve Wise, who's a local award-winning filmmaker and also part of Film Florida, which is the the advocacy group for the film industry in Florida. We've been talking about, uh, you know, the the lack of incentives that makes it difficult for filmmakers to both find work in the state and to get films made in the state. But, uh, but you've had some, some success filming here in the state. You've had a, a short film called Servi, uh, which mm-hmm. has, has won uh, how many awards now? It's several. Um, it's up to 22. 22 awards. So uh, that, yeah. that's, that's no small potatoes for, uh, what is it, a 20-minute film about approximately? Uh, 12 minutes. Actually. Oh, wow. Well, I don't want to say it seemed like 20 minutes, but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, so you, you've had this film, you've, you've worked on a number of other films too, and you are, uh, you've got a couple of projects that are, that are in the works right now. Uh, let's start with, uh, you've got a, a pilot that you're working on shooting and producing with uh, a couple of, uh, 
people that might be familiar to people here in Pensacola, maybe they've come and visited us for uh, Pensacon or for some other related events. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, um, Corin Nemec and Jason London are starring in uh, this project called Blackwater Blues. And the what we're doing is we're shooting a pilot. It's going to be you know, about 22, 25 minutes long. Um, and it's actually, you know, even though I was just kind of uh, on my soapbox about shooting in Florida, this is going to be shot in Biloxi. And uh, that's mainly because it's, it's set there, and that's where um, those guys are based out of. And so, you know, they brought me in. Yeah, everything was already kind of set in place with that. So, um, but it's still exciting that it's going to be shot here in you know in the Gulf Coast region, and um, it's kind of a gritty but yet comedic uh, take about these two brothers that are kind of ne'er do wells, if you will, and uh, that they're um, getting into the kind of the seedy underbelly of the local you know small town that they live in in search of their mother who's gone missing, and so the. The whole series would be kind of the – that would be the arc of the series of them, you know, searching for their mother. This is just the first episode, and it's, it's kind of a truncated version of it uh, with the intent of taking it to Netflix or some of the other streamers or networks and getting them interested in it. I, I'm having trouble envisioning Corin and Jason as ne'er-do-wells. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just kidding. No, no, we, we, we love both of those guys. They've been uh, they've been good friends to Pensacon and good friends to Pensacola. And uh, I think we're going to probably see them back here in town for, for Pensacon in, in May, I hope. Uh, looking, for, lo- looking forward to that. But uh, th- this should be a lot of fun, and uh, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye out for that. But you also have been uh, prepping for, for your first feature film, correct? Um, that's correct. Uh, this, it's called Paradigm. It's a screenplay that I wrote and uh, will be directing. Um, it's also kind of like serving. It's on the festival and contest circuit. And so far, it's won six awards internationally. And we, I have a producer by the name of Eric Miles that's uh, out of Orlando. And we have taken it to uh, a company out of Los Angeles and have teamed up with them. I can't really talk too much about that yet <laughs> because we're still kind of in the early stages of uh, hashing out the budget and all that, that stuff. But um, the hopes are that uh, we'll be able to get this funded and shot here in Florida. And you, you say you've won several awards, but let's be clear, that's for the screenplay. You haven't actually shot anything yet. Correct. Yes. Yeah, it's... Um, we the, the first one was actually in 2019 at the Orlando Film Festival, and uh, because of that win, one of the local film schools there, Valencia College, uh, offered us a really nice package deal to where it, it saves a lot of money on the budget for us to tie in with, with their resources that they have, which they have a brand new... Uh, building that includes post-production suites and the studio and they have all the equipment. I mean, just right down the line. And so um, that, that was a really huge boon for us, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's one best screenplay four times now and then picked up a couple other uh, additional awards as well. So, and just to, just to put this into context for folks, you mentioned the Orlando film festival where you won, for the screenplay, uh, tell tell folks what movie won Best Picture at that film festival. 
that would have been Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, so so this is not small potatoes. This is a big time festival with with big time uh, mainstream filmmakers. You know, guys like Taika Waititi entering their their films in this festival. So it's a pretty prestigious award. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was very, very pleased. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so give people the 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 basics of what Paradigm is about. Uh, it's a suspense thriller. I like to say it's Hitchcock by way of Christopher Nolan for uh, for some geeks out there. Um, it's a basically, without giving too much away, what happens if someone has a secret they've been harboring from the past and keeping it from their loved ones, and then someone from that past reemerges that threatens their lifestyle. And what to you know? What happens with a the person that's reemerging that wants revenge for things that happened in the past, and b the person that is hiding the secrets? Um, what will they go to to keep that secret? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on in the news, but I'm wondering if you've thought about casting Army Hammer in this movie. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I think that would might uh, take a bite out of uh, the film a little bit. Uh, oh, you went there. You went there. I did. Oh, boy. Okay, yeah. Happy Saturday, everybody. <laughs> uh, now, now uh, that's not the only project that, that you've been working on. I know you've got a number of other screenplays in the work. You've got your, your production company. Just talk a little bit about what your ambitions are for, it's called Reality Check Entertainment, correct? Reality Check Entertainment, and uh, yeah, we're we're based here in uh, Pensacola. I do have a couple of business partners that are out of state, though. That uh, have uh, we actually worked on a project uh, in Orlando many years ago, and we've kind of reteamed for for this. But um, yeah, the the idea is that we would love to build up this company to be able to have um, you know to continue making feature films here in this area. And you've got a couple and, of other screenplays that with that are ready to go, basically, with that in mind. Oh, yeah. We have uh, one in particular that's uh, called The Magic Hour, which is kind of a Twilight Zone-esque um, fantasy film that's set in a bookstore, actually, that has a book with magical properties in it. And so it, it, it's an anthology that tells different, uh, uh, different stories that are held within the book. And then um, I also have another screenplay that's doing quite well in the festival circuit. It's picked up a, a few uh, um, finalists, semi-finalist type of uh, uh, honors, and uh, it's called Maelstrom, which is a, a kind of an old-fashioned monster movie. Well, you know, we, we certainly don't have time for old-fashioned monster movies here in Pensacola. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could be right up there with Atlantic Rim, Steve. Oh yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'd be a little, uh, a little better quality than that. I mean, I mean, <laughs> not, not, nothing against uh, people that worked on it because uh, it was, you know, everybody had fun that, that worked on it, from what it seems. Yeah, and and point, you know, we point out, yes, films do sometimes still get made in this area, and that was one of them. It was you know, mm -hmm. completely shot and. Uh, I had an interesting debate with some people recently about whether it's set here or not, and I think it very clearly is, but. Uh, somebody wanted to argue with me about that, and I, I, I got to the point where I said, "You're really going to make me watch this thing again?" <laughs> <laughs> well, if it is set here, um, it's a highly fictionalized version of, of 
Pensacola. Well, you know, Pensacola is kind of highly fictionalized all all of its own. <laughs> now, uh, you had an experience, and some folks have heard about this, but I, I want to make sure we mention this. Uh, you actually co-wrote a screenplay that would have been the fifth Batman movie in the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher series. Talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, we, uh, I had a co-writer, Lee Shapiro, and this was back in the day and we, you know, we were both huge Batman fans. Uh, we had just, uh, had a meeting with Warner brothers about another project that ended up not going anywhere. And after, uh, Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin came out, that was just an absolute disaster. We pitched Warner brothers an idea, uh, that we had for, uh, a follow-up that would kind of return it back to the Tim Burton style and, they liked the, the pitch, and they said, yeah, I'll go ahead and write it. Um, we dealt with them for a couple of years on it, and ultimately they decided that that particular series they wanted to kind of put aside and start fresh with something new. So because our script was still in that continuity, we, we got turned down. And uh, But uh, <laughs> it took like five more projects before uh, Batman Begins came out, and uh, uh, we and I guess we could uh, be a little bit uh, honored, if you will, that uh, a few elements from our script ended up in that film. <laughs> so it was like, oh, look, that looks very familiar. Uh, okay. But uh, anyways. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can definitely look at it as a positive if somebody like Christopher Nolan thought, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going yeah. <laughs> to borrow that without credit. Right, but uh, which but, happens all the time. Oh yeah, that's I mean, that's how yeah. it works. That's that's how it works. Yeah. We're not we're not making any you know accusations or anything like that. Uh, we just want to mm -hmm. throw that out there. But uh, first of all, uh, we're we're running low on time for this segment. So Steve, I want to make sure people know where they can find out more about uh, you and your projects. First of all, um, well, you can track me down on Facebook, um, but. Also, if you go to stephenjwise.com, it's Stephen with a PH, uh, then you, that's my website. Uh, you can also check out realitycheckent.com and uh, take a look at our um, what we have going on as far as uh, the company projects. And where can people find out more about Film Florida's efforts for the Florida film industry? filmflorida.org. Please take a look at that. Um, if you're a filmmaker out there, please join because we, we would love to have more uh, filmmakers involved with the, the organization. Okay, we have to take a break. When we will come back, Jeremy Branch will be joining us and we'll be talking about uh, WandaVision and some other things. Stay with us. You're listening to News Radio 923 and AM 
News Radio 92.3 and AM 1620. Welcome back to Let's Go Pensacola. I am your host, Julio Diaz. Uh, we are welcoming now on to the call Jeremy Branch with the Movies Are Terrible channel. Jeremy, welcome back to Let's Go Pensacola. I am such a huge fan of Led Zeppelin, so I'm glad that you started the segment off with uh, my favorite Led Zeppelin song. Well, Jeremy, it's been good talking to you. Uh, we'll have to get, <laughs> get an actual pop culture expert on the show next time. Uh, Thank you for having me. <laughs> we've got Jeremy, and of course, Steve Wise is still with us as well. And we're gonna we're gonna move into talking about uh, greater subjects in pop culture now. And I think we got to start. Uh, and I think this is gonna probably be. A recurring segment for the uh, the at least the entirety of the run of this series. We'll see if uh, we carry this on into future Marvel Cinematic Universe series. But uh, WandaVision, just there's so much to discuss about this show that every week with a with a new episode, I, I'm I'm definitely eager to talk about it. And uh, you know, Jeremy was on last week talking about last week's episode, so I had to bring him back because uh, I think all of us have seen this week's episode, which just came out yesterday, and. Uh, this is the one I think that uh, I don't think anybody's got anything to complain about anymore. I think we know where we're going, where we're going now. Uh, we're, we're seeing how things tie together, and uh, but it's not like all questions are answered either. There's still a lot of mystery, and we're just seeing the intricacy of what this puzzle box is now, and I, and I'm pretty excited about it. Steve, I, I mean, you haven't gotten a chance to discuss the series with us at all, so. Tell me, how are you feeling about uh, about WandaVision? Have you liked the show so oh, far? I love it. Um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people have been complaining that, you know, uh, it's just, at least the first couple episodes, oh, it's just a sitcom and it's just it's a retread of, well, yeah, that's kind of the point, but it really isn't a sitcom. And, and I think that those who are complaining that about the sitcom tropes fail to understand that this is set up. You know, this is this is things that they they have put a lot of clues, which <laughs> go to YouTube and you can find a lot of videos over analyzing every <laughs> every possible clue that's out there. Um, but that's kind of part of the fun that you can see what you know how intelligently they have written the series with every line of dialogue has some deeper meaning than what's on the surface. Uh, the all the actions that they go through have meaning. Even the set dressings and the props are sprinkled with clues that of what the overall mystery is. And it's just it's really a fun thing to delve into if you get past the surface. Yeah, and and as you say, those tropes are there for a reason, and it's finally starting to become clear what that reason is in this episode this episode is the first one we spend uh really almost the entirety of the episode outside of the sitcom yeah. world, which is it's very interesting to see how that's affecting the real world of the marvel universe but it's also interesting in that we got a little bit of a flashback to who monica rambeau is who's the character that yeah. we, we've known as geraldine in the in the previous episodes of the series this character that we've seen as geraldine within the sitcom world is actually a character named monica rambeau uh we had that some of us knew that already because it, it had been out there in the media but uh you know we got to see more about what this character is about we got to you know, confirm that yes, this is the daughter of uh, Captain Marvel's best friend from the Captain Marvel movie. Uh, we also saw, which we didn't know, that she was one of the victims of the blip. She had uh, she had been uh, turned to ash by Thanos and came back after five years. So that was interesting to add that to the uh, to the mix. 
and uh, we got to see what Sword is all about, and that that was very interesting too. And we got to see a couple of other familiar faces from the Marvel Cinematic Universe who I'd uh, I'd mentioned last week. We knew they were coming eventually. I didn't know they were coming this week. So uh, it's great to see Randall Park as Agent Jimmy Woo, and of course, Kat, of course, Cat Dennings as Darcy from the the Thor movies. It was was very welcome to see her back and. Uh, Jeremy, I really liked that uh, she got to be a little more serious in in this than she was. You know, she was very much a comic relief character in the Thor movies, and uh, she's a great comedian. And I think she's naturally effervescent, and that comes through even in this. But uh, I thought it was great to see her in a little bit more of a serious part here. Oh yeah, couldn't agree more. And you know, uh, to your point, you and I discussed this last week, and you did kind of say this actor is going to be showing up, this actor is going to be showing up. And then they, they laid it all on the table. I think we collectively had a suspicion that episode four was going to drastically change gears. And that, uh, especially after the end of last week's episode, you're, you're starting to realize, as you said, we get our first peek behind the curtain. We're not by any means open curtains. We see the whole picture in front of us, but we're inching towards that. And I really do like the, the slow reveal to Steve's point. Like, I'm going to go the other way with it a little bit and say I love living in the mystery. I really enjoyed the setup. I thought it was a very unorthodox way of bringing people into this world. And then how meta that's already become to where Randall Park and Kat Dennings' characters respectively are like giving meta commentary on the show that we literally just watched. I thought that was really interesting to see them in the position of the audience and, and reacting in a way that somebody in the studio audience may react. So I really like all of it. I don't think, um, I don't think there were any major revelations in this episode other than, as you mentioned, Julio, the, the blip, um, for some reason we knew in context of infinity war and that vision was not snapped out of existence, but that he was actually killed. But it never occurred to me that, potentially some of the characters in this show could have actually been snapped away and just kind of turned to dust for the last five years. So I like the way that they showed that in the hospital scene at the beginning. I thought that was super cool. But um, to me, the two big revelations were a, that Westview is a real place with actual inhabitants. This isn't something that only existed inside of Wanda's mind, which I was a little on the fence about. And then the other big revelation is that I am now believe that uh, Vision truly is dead and that he is existing as just a small part of her psyche, of, of her conscience. And that's the way that I'm interpreting it. However, that kind of seems to cross wires between what is actually happening in the real world versus what's happening in her head. And as I just said, Westview's a physical location. So is there a vision zombie that's been reanimated by wanda that that image that we got was super creepy and effective and i love that they threw zombie vision into the mix that's something <laughs> i didn't realize that that i wanted to see but yeah I, I love this episode i think there's just so much uh cool stuff going on and i'm i'm really excited to see where it all ends up you know yeah i didn't expect to see all of the characters that we knew were coming in the same episode right but, but i really liked the little things that they did to 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 show the connectivity of those characters, the overall universe, and the thing that I'm thinking of specifically is when uh, when Jimmy Woo pulls his card out to give to Monica Rambeau, and he does it with that little magic flourish and makes the card appear in his hand. <laughs> that if you've seen the Ant Man Ant Man and the Wasp, that was something that he learned from Ant Man. <laughs> he learned from Scott Lang because Scott Lang was on 
on house arrest and Jimmy Woo was like his guard. And uh, he was impressed by the sleight of hand that uh, Scott Lang learned. And so we get to see that little bit, you know, just those little character bits are, are so much fun. And they, they tie the universe together in, in a way that I really, really love. Now, I don't think we've seen the last of the sitcom world by any stretch. In fact, we know that we've seen uh, at least some uh, some tease of, of certainly the 80s. And I think they're going for a family ties thing with the 80s. But I have uh, I have been advocating that uh, I hope they're going to get to the 90s. And I think they are. And uh, when they do, doesn't that have to be full house? I mean, I, I mean, it, it is like a quintessential 90s family sitcom. It involves twins. And oh yeah, those twins were Elizabeth Olsen's sisters. So you know, I just I just feel like that that's what I really want to see. What 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 are you, Steve? What are you looking for from the sitcom world for the next few episodes? What are you hoping to see? Um, I'm not sure what I'm hoping to see. I think um, one of the advertisements indicated that at some point we get like a Modern Family type of uh, vibe going on, um, mm. but that's more you know modern so I, i'm not sure as far as the 90s what uh you know i mean they can they can even do roseanne you know that kind of uh feel to it but i think that with this episode it definitely breaks the format you know because the first three episodes have been oh okay we've got a sitcom from the 50s one from the 60s one from the 70s i was fully expecting this week to be one from the 80s and just for them to drop more clues and for them to just do a 180 and go nope we're now showing what's going on outside and allowing us to find some answers to certain questions, but raising other questions as well. I don't know if they're going to return to that format next week where, okay, well, we're just back in the sitcom world. I think to some degree we will be like that, but they're going to have to do kind of more of a part of it in the sitcom world and part of it out in the real world. And, you know, just to see what, how the investigators and how S.W.O.R.D. is trying to deal with the, the, the situation. And, of course, Monica, you know, what's going to happen with her? Is she going to go back into uh, into Westview or <laughs> is she going to work completely outside of it? And, and, you know, so, I mean, those are things that I think that we're going to be seeing in upcoming episodes is how S.W.O.R.D. is going to be interacting with Wanda and, uh, and of course, Vision at some point is going to uh, figure things out too. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit more about WandaVision and then we'll move on to some other pop culture issues when we come back from the break. You're listening to nine, News Radio 92.3 and AM 1620. Welcome back to Let's Go Pensacola. I am your host, Julio Diaz. We are talking about WandaVision with Steve Wise and Jeremy Branch. Uh, 
we'll, we'll, we'll do a couple more minutes on WandaVision, then we'll maybe move on to some of the other things that are going on in the pop culture world right now. But uh, I wanted to talk about the, the fact that, and we should say too, spoiler warnings if you haven't seen episode four of WandaVision yet, uh, because we are going to be talking about uh, some of the detail of this episode. I know we did a little bit in the last segment, but uh, hopefully uh, hopefully we didn't spoil too much for anybody. But there's, there's something specific I want to get into right now, and that's uh, with this revelation that all of these people that are in the the sitcom world with Wanda and Vision are the real residents of a real town, that it, the whole town has been kind of sucked into this sitcom world. Uh, how does that recolor the the three episodes that we've seen already? Because, I mean, I think this is like a serious psychological horror twist that uh, you really got to look at everything that you've seen so far. And you, they, they had this great scene in the episode of them uh, identifying who the people were and saying, you know, they've been cast as this character within the sitcom world. Uh, but those people are, are having to live this life. And I think we saw a little flash of that in, uh, in the third episode with, uh, with Agnes and uh, is it Herb? Is that, is Herb the, uh, Herb, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeremy, talk a little bit about this. What do you what do you see in here, and what do you think about that? Yeah, that's really fascinating to just kind of look at it in that different context, um, as as is addressed by Darcy in the show. She calls them characters, and then um, he says uh, people. You know, these are not just characters in a sitcom; these are actual people. And it does it, it kind of begs the question: um, When did all of this start taking a, taking place? They obviously have some sense of awareness because, as you just now said, the two neighbors um, are in the midst of potentially breaking this revelation to Vision, which I, I just keep coming back to this concept. Well, obviously Vision is existing on his own, um, separate from just Wanda, because why would they tell? It, it, it just it opens up a lot of questions, but I do agree with what you said, that it, it, it's horrifying in essence and the fact that everybody surrounding westview has this selective amnesia they're not even aware that this geographic location exists anymore and i think that's that's um it's just interesting it's unlike things that we've seen in the past before as in like in the truman show they are actors um and when you kind of go down the list and look at things like cabin in the woods where uh there aren't quote-unquote extras in it per se. So I think that they're doing something that is, is wholly original. I don't know. Maybe there's a twilight zone episode that might be similar. I'm not, I'm not real, real uh, sure about all of the different episodes, but I do think that it's, it's a really interesting implication about how good or bad Wanda is. I mean, obviously she experienced some serious trauma, but her actions are affecting what, nearly 4,000 people. So I'm definitely curious to see how things work out moving forward in, in that regard specifically. Steve, what do you think about this? I, I, I'm with Jeremy. I don't think I've seen something quite like this before in that these people are, are basically being turned into puppets and who knows what they're being made right. to do that may be against their wills or against, you know, if you want to get really metaphysical about it and their religion or, you know, their, their personal beliefs or, or have they been paired well, off with people that they really want to be paired off with that sort of thing? You know, when you start thinking about it on that scale, you know, what, what well, do you the think? Closest, uh, the closest Twilight Zone episode that uh, Jeremy mentioned uh, it was It's a Good Life where yeah. with Cloris Leachman, who just passed away, and where this little boy has 
omniscient powers and holds a town hostage, basically, mm. and literally wipes it off the map. And so it exists in its own reality. Now, in that case, the the townspeople are have to kind of play along with, with little boy's fantasy, but they still are themselves. So this twist is that they're literally cast, like you said, as characters in the sitcom. So whether or not they actually know that they're in this position, I think there are clues that they do know. Uh, or at fact, least that some at the, people do. Right, or that some people are, are trying to figure out what's going on. Because if you think about the, the second episode when Vision goes to the library and interrupts that meeting, and oh, yeah, one true. of Herb, I think it was, or one of the characters said, well, this is kind of a closed meeting. You know, this is just for members only. And Vision just, well, I want to be a member. And he joins in. They're meeting secretly for a reason. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think that reason is because they're trying to figure out what's going on or they know what's going on and they're trying to, you know, band together. Yeah, we and we still have you know there's a, there's a number of other mysteries that are still out there. We still have the creepy chant of for the children that yeah. uh, that we, yeah. we don't know what that's about. If I I'm going to guess that that is about the the twins. I think it's so. got to be. Yeah, I I mean, man, I just love everything about this show. This is like this is like what it was like when Lost was coming out on a weekly basis in the in the first couple of seasons and everybody was excited about it. You had to watch it the day it dropped because you couldn't go into the office the next day without getting spoiled on stuff because everybody was going to be discussing it and uh I just I really loved that and uh this has given me that same buzz and I uh, I didn't didn't realize how much I missed it and it would not be the same if it had just all dropped at once. I think dropping right. this a week at a time was exactly the right decision. I know that's not so much as about this series as it is about Disney Plus's overall strategy, but man, does it work with this series. I, I, I really love that I got to wait a week to find out what's next, which is weird because <laughs> normally I don't feel that way, but in this case I do. What do you, what do you think about that, Steve? Oh, no, I, I feel the same way. Some shows it doesn't work, um, and I'm going to call out The Stand for, for that, mm. where it, I think that given the way that that particular show tells its story, I think it would have benefited from binging because I'm, I've been getting frustrated waiting week to week and basically losing interest. In it. Whereas with WandaVision, I'm excited about the next episode. And like, like you said, Julio, it, there's this, this buildup of this mystery. And of course, seeing what people are talking about online and all the videos, you know, analyzing every part of it. There's fun outside of just that half hour watching it. Yes. Well, you, you mentioned the stand and let's take that opportunity to, to see to that a little bit because Steve, I think you're the only person I know that's still watching it. And I, I know that you're a massive Stephen King fan, but I, I feel like you're, you're, you might be somewhat of a masochist here because I, I didn't bother starting after I heard some of the things I heard about it. Uh, and you kind of indicated you're not, uh, you're not really enjoying it much either. No, um, actually this last episode, which is the second two final episode, uh, which was written by Stephen King's son, Owen, uh, was actually entertaining. And it, I felt like it captured the magic, if you will, of what this series should have been from the start. Um, the, the problem is that, and a lot of people have talked about this, that for whatever reason, the showrunners decided to tell the series in a nonlinear manner, meaning they start off just kind of in the middle of the story and then start with flashback. And the first several episodes primarily are told in this just really random order. And you, you have characters that 
aren't introduced for a couple episodes. And then when they are, it's like their stories are just jumbled and, and then you forget about them when they finally come back. And it's just, it's, it does the story a disservice. And it also does not allow the audience to fully understand the journeys that these characters go on and really embrace, I, I, I said this, how endearing the characters are. You know, I've read the book numerous times. And every time I read it, I feel like I'm going back in with my friends. The original miniseries that McGarris directed in the 90s has that feel too. It, it suffered from a early 90s television network budget, but it still captured the essence of what the story should be. This new series just, um, it doesn't. Jeremy, have you watched it at all? Yeah, I have. I've watched a couple episodes, and I, I, I haven't fallen off. I'm just kind of waiting for it to wrap itself up, and then I'm going to go and binge it, because I agree with Steve. It's it's almost like, it, it does. It feels like a hollow experience. It, it's not a fulfilling show. I don't feel that the cliffhangers are exceptionally uh, engaging and, and desperately make me want to keep coming back to it. Steve said something uh, as a metaphor a moment ago, and I feel like it is also literal to me, and that is that the, the showrunners... They really have taken the magic out of it. And I, I almost feel like it's such an epic and sweeping story. And you do get that out of, out of Mick Garris's uh, television miniseries. I feel like they've taken a lot of the <clears throat> uh, fantastical, perhaps supernatural element that kind of looms over the whole thing and really downplayed it to a point that it, it almost just feels like a movie about a pandemic and uh it's rough timing. It's it's the furthest thing from escapism that it could possibly be. In the couple episodes that I saw, I'm like, this could not be worse timing for a movie like this uh, <laughs> to come out because it's just too real. It's it's very grim, and I just I, I thought ahead of time, Alexander Skarsgård as as Randall Flagg, what pitch perfect casting. But I feel like all of the characters at this point, they're just underwritten. They're not super dynamic. Everything feels static because of the nonlinear storytelling. It doesn't feel like things are building momentum in the way that they should. Right. And uh, it's a shame because over the last couple of years, some of the greatest television series uh, to hit my radar were Stephen King adaptations. Uh, you know, quite literally, there was The Outsider, which I thought was exceptional. And then yeah, it, was um, and it was really good. And then in a kind of more roundabout way was uh, Castle Rock, which, while it's not a Stephen King story, is based on a lot of his characters. So I feel like uh, his TV stuff and his films, obviously the theatrical stuff that's come out over the last couple of years, and Gerald's Game have all been really, really good. So this is definitely a letdown because I do know that it's one of Stephen King's most epic in scale and most beloved stories. And I, I just feel like it had a lot of potential that it's unfortunately squandered. Well, guys, I would love to keep talking about this, but unfortunately we are out of time. Uh, Jeremy Branch, Steve Wise, thanks so much for joining me this week. We will be back next week with much more for you. Until then, you're listening to News Radio 92.3 and AM 1620.